Turn in your Bible to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Uh, Multiple times this week I heard Christians speculating about whether or not we are living in the end times. And uh, it's been true for generations and generations that Christians always love to think that their generation is the one in which Jesus is coming back. And oftentimes the verses that they use to talk about that are verses from Matthew 24. But this actually as we will be seeing, seems to miss the point of what's going on in this passage and what Jesus is saying. Now, as we go through this series, you may find that you don't agree with um, all the details as I'm giving them to you. And admittedly, some of these things are hard to understand. But I hope that we're all willing to approach the text with kind of a humility and a willingness to be taught by the Spirit. The Word of God is the highest authority. Not me, not the denomination, not Christian books or radio or music or anything like that. And if as we study Matthew 24, I end up stepping on your eschatological toes, it's not personal. Um, Over the years, I have kind of held or at least leaned toward probably most of the different major views as I've taken time to work through these passages. And it's taken a long time for me to arrive where I am, so I don't expect everyone else to just simply accept the view that I'm teaching. At the same time, there's a, there's a balance that we want to strike here. The essential truth from this passage is that Jesus is the ultimate king and judge. And you need to be in submission to him. The details of the timing of everything else that happens in the passage are not as important. That's not to say that they are unimportant. They are important. I firmly believe that what you believe about the end times and things like that actually makes a big difference in how you live today. And all scripture is given to us to equip us and to make us mature. So it's okay for us to differ on some of the details and for that not to affect our fellowship. But at the same time, we want to together seek to understand these things as best we can. And so this morning I want to talk just kind of as we get started a little bit about how to interpret Matthew 24. Oftentimes you will hear the accusation made that someone is not taking passages like this literally. But what does that mean? What does literally mean when Jesus says that he is the door or the gate? Is he literally a door or a gate. When he says, I'm the vine, is he literally a vine? Well, what we have to have in mind when we use the word literally is that interpreting something literally means interpreting it according to the kind of literature that it is. What does the author intend for his reader to understand? And this is apocalyptic literature here. So apocalyptic literature is a traditional Jewish way of speaking or writing that kind of talks about major events and uses a lot of symbols or exaggerated language to make its point. So an example from Matthew 24 would be, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we'll see as we get into the passage in later weeks, Language like that is used in the Old Testament of prophecies that were given and fulfilled in the Old Testament. We need to understand the language the way it's intended. 
We use similar language tools today. We think of things being, you know, some major event. It was an earth-shattering event. Literally? Is the earth shattered? No, but we understand what that language means. So we need to rightly interpret a passage like Matthew 24 that uses apocalyptic language, meaning we need to seek to understand it the way the author intended it. So let me start this morning with kind of a, a brief little case study. What end times doctrine do you think of when you hear these words? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. If your background is like mine, that passage was typically used to describe the secret rapture of the church. When Christians are caught up in the clouds with Jesus to escape this earth, while on earth there's a seven-year period of suffering called the tribulation. And maybe you picture scenes from books or movies with people just disappearing, their clothes left behind, mass confusion and hysteria on the earth. But take a closer look at the context of the passage. So look there with me. This is in Matthew 24. It's not part of what we're looking at this morning, but I just want to set the stage with this. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 37. Matthew 24, verse 37. This is just to kind of get us thinking about how we interpret passages like this. Matthew 24, starting in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, okay, so just pause right there. Jesus, as recorded by Matthew here, is telling you, think about the story that you know of Noah. And something about that story is going to be helping you understand what Jesus is about to say. Okay. For as in those, excuse me, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So now he's talking about his coming. He's been talking about it. We've been hinting at it through the book of Matthew. All of Matthew 24 to this point has been talking about his coming. That's what the disciples are asking about. And now he's going to say, there's something similar about the days of Noah and the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Okay, so think about what was going on in Noah's day. Noah, the life was going on as normal. People are eating and drinking and getting married and all of that, right? That's what's going on on the earth. Is that what was happening for Noah and his family? I mean, they're going through life, but it's not life as normal. What are they doing? What's the main thing they're working on? They're building an ark. Why are they doing that? Because there's a message that they have been given that judgment is coming. And if they want to escape the judgment, here's what they need to do. They need to build an ark. But by the time the judgment falls, the ark needs to be completed. Verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So all the other people on earth in the days of Noah were unaware of this coming judgment. And then when the judgment came, it took them away. It swept them away. Who were the only people left after the judgment fell 
from God in the flood and swept all the people away, who was left? Noah and his family. Jesus says, at the coming of the Son of Man, that's what it will be like. In other words, you want to be left behind. You don't want to be taken away. According to what Jesus is saying, being left behind is a good thing. It means you didn't get swept away in the judgment. That's what Jesus is communicating here. So for chapters and chapters now, Jesus has been warning of coming judgment. And when he comes in judgment, he tells them they should be ready, like Noah and his family. They don't want to be swept away in that judgment. So Jesus uses the story of Noah to help us understand exactly what he means. But if we don't anchor our understanding in the text, then we're vulnerable to all kinds of wrong ideas that we will put into the text. We need to let the text speak on its own terms. And here's what I want to communicate, and I think I'm going to just kind of probably try to say this as clearly as I can each week, because if you're like me, it takes a while for something like this to sink in. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Okay? We've got to get that right if we're going to understand Matthew 24. So all of Jesus' warnings leading up to this point and this explanation that he's giving here in Matthew 24 are speaking about what is going to happen in A.D. 70 and the, the years leading up to it because we know from history exactly what happened. Roman troops lay siege to Jerusalem. In A.D. 70, they attack and destroy the city and the temple. And this is spoken of by Jesus as his coming in judgment. This is the coming of the Son of Man. It's a judgment coming. In the Old Testament, we see God coming in judgment over and over and over. And Jesus uses the same language here to describe what he will do once he has ascended and been enthroned. He will judge his enemies who have rejected him. Now, none of this is to deny the doctrine of the second coming. There will be a second coming. And as we continue our study in the new year, we may get into some of that a little bit. But that's just not what Jesus is talking about here. In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the chapters that led up to Matthew 24 and a little further back in Matthew's gospel to see what leads to this announcement of judgment. And I want to do that again today, but with a few different passages so that you can kind of continue over and over week by week to see this theme in the gospels and particularly in Matthew. So we're going to zoom out again for a little bit, and hopefully by the end of eight weeks, you'll have a really good feel for the fact that what comes in Matthew 24 is not a surprise. It's the climax in judgment of some things that have been heading this way for a very long time. So for starters today, <clears throat> I want you to think about the city of Jerusalem. Okay, Think about the city of Jerusalem. It is the place for Matthew that is opposed to Jesus. It is the, the location of those who reject Jesus as Messiah. So go with me now back to Matthew chapter 2. Okay, Matthew chapter 2. And we're just going to hit a couple of passages to, to kind of set the stage here before we jump in and look at the first eight verses this morning of Matthew 24. Matthew 2. So chapter 1, we have the birth story of Jesus. And now in chapter 2, 
<clears throat> Jesus is no longer a newborn, but he's uh, still very young. And we have the visit of the wise men. Okay, Matthew chapter 2. Look at these first three verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So when the, when the wise men show up in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews, we read that Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled too. So we have Gentiles, the wise men from the east, who are beginning to recognize Jesus' identity as the true king. But the Jewish rulers, Herod, and Jerusalem are troubled by this. That begins to set the stage for the reaction to Jesus that we will continue to see. Now in Matthew 3 and 4, crowds from Jerusalem come out to see and hear Jesus. By chapter 15, religious leaders from Jerusalem come out to investigate his teaching. But it's not until chapter 16 that Jesus ever says anything about going to Jerusalem. So look at chapter 16. In verse 21, after Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So now Jesus is starting to talk about going to Jerusalem, which is the proper place for the king. But he says that Jerusalem will reject him and kill him. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything about Jerusalem again until chapter 20. So look there, chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. Okay, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then chapter 21 begins, as we saw a couple weeks ago, with the triumphal entry. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem now as the king arriving in his city. But what happens? Everything we've seen over the last two weeks, all that conflict happens. Right? Jesus is trying to be trapped by Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and lawyers. And there's all of this conflict that happens for chapter after chapter. And then finally, Matthew 23, Jesus has... These seven woes that we looked at last week where he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees with these curses. And you come down to the very end of the last one and Jesus begins this lament over Jerusalem. Look at chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says he was willing to take the judgment for Jerusalem. Like a hen that gathers the chicks under her wings and the judgment falls on the hen, not on the chicks. Jesus says, I was willing to take the the judgment for you, Jerusalem, but you were not willing. So Jesus will endure God's judgment for all those who accept him as Messiah, as Lord, but he's not enduring the judgment for those who reject him. They will face God's wrath on their own. Hopefully seeing how Matthew presents Jerusalem helps you to see this conflict that's building to what we see in Matthew 24. Let me give you one other way to look at it before we dig into Matthew 24 itself. In Matthew 24, verse 34, as we've seen before, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he lays out in Matthew 24 all the things that are going to happen. And he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The word truly means amen, or it is so, or this is a solemn fact that I'm about to say. It's used to draw attention and emphasis. And the phrase, I say to you, is another way of doing the same thing. So it's drawing attention to what's about to be said. Pay attention, Jesus says. This is important, and when you put those two together, truly, I say to you, Jesus is really emphasizing something. And in Matthew's gospel, he says this, truly, I say to you, four times in conjunction with a comment about the current generation. The last one is the one we just read, Matthew 24, 34. I want you to see the other ones. So turn with me back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Verses 16 to 23. Jesus is sending the 12 out kind of on a preliminary mission. He's going to send them out permanently later at the Great Commission, but he's sending them out temporarily now. And he says, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. By the way, doesn't that sound like the book of Acts? Doesn't that sound exactly like what happens after Jesus ascends? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Think, for example, of Peter. He's denying Christ right before the crucifixion. And a few weeks later, he's publicly preaching in Jerusalem about Jesus the Messiah. And people are responding. How does that happen? Did Peter take, you know, speech lessons in those weeks? No, it's the work of the Spirit. Okay, what what Jesus is describing here is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. 
Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so you have to ask the end of what? The end of what? And I'm going to say it's the end of the old covenant era that's coming to a close in AD 70. The one who endures to the end of that will be saved, just like those who are saved in the sense that they're, they escape the judgment, just like in the days of Noah, Noah was saved because he escaped the judgment. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now here's the truly I say to you part, okay? For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's coming soon, according to what Jesus is saying here. You won't even have time to take this message to all the towns in Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment. Flip over to Matthew 16. We're going to look at verses 24 to 28. Now, we just read Matthew 16, 21 a moment ago where Jesus says he'll go to Jerusalem and be killed. So after this section where Jesus is identified as Messiah, he says he'll go to Jerusalem where he'll be rejected and killed. And then Peter says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter because Jesus knows that it is precisely by going to Jerusalem, being rejected and killed and crucified, that he will accomplish representing his people, taking their sins on himself, on their behalf, on the cross. Then Jesus speaks to his disciples about the cost of following him. There's a choice to be made. There's a line drawn in the sand. Will you follow Jesus or will you reject him? So look at chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is A.D. 30. Jesus says, there are people standing here listening to the sound of my voice right now who will not die before this happens. So when we read about the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24, this is what we're talking about. Jesus the King will come in judgment, and you want to be on the right side of the dividing line. The disciples will make their choice. The religious leaders will make their choice. The city of Jerusalem will make its choice. And the events of AD 70 will be God's judgment on Jerusalem for rejecting Jesus. And then we saw Matthew 23, those woes that we talked about last week that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees. And we just read verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets. Look at the verse before that. This is the third, truly I say to you. Matthew 23, 36. Truly I say to you, 
All these things will come upon this generation. And then the fourth one that we started with, Matthew 24, 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. When you pay attention to what Matthew is telling us, it's unmistakable. Jesus is announcing the judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD on the generation to whom he spoke these things. That's the introduction. Okay, now let's dig in. Matthew 24, we're going to look at the first eight verses. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so Jesus leaves the temple. There's echoes here of Ezekiel chapter 11, when the glory of, the, of God leaves the temple. And the glory of God leaves and it goes out and camps on the Mount of Olives. And the idea is, now there will be a siege around Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, the first temple. So here we have Jesus leaving the temple and he's going to go to the Mount of Olives, just like the glory of God in Ezekiel 11. And the idea is that Jesus is leaving Jerusalem and the temple to their judgment. And the disciples point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're very specific. It's this temple standing there. It's not some third rebuilt temple in the future. It's this temple that's right there in front of them. And Jesus very clearly prophesies that this temple will be torn down. Now, that happens historically in AD 70. Roman general Titus surrounds the city. Eventually, you know, they lay siege. Eventually they come in, they kill basically everybody in the city, destroy the city, destroy the temple. I want you to hear from history how this happened so that you can see Jesus' words of prophecy took place as he said. Here's how Josephus describes it. And by the way, Josephus is a Jewish historian, but he works with the Romans. In fact, during the siege of Jerusalem, Josephus is the one who communicates from the Roman general, Titus, to the Jewish people. He's like the translator. Okay? He's a historian. He's present there on the scene. He witnessed with his own eyes what he's recording. And here's what he says in his book, Jewish Wars. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, so the Roman army has come in, they've wiped everybody out, it's all over. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency, and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. So destroy the whole city, destroy the temple, but leave these towers, which are part of the fortress. It's not part of the temple. It's not what Jesus was talking about. And the western wall. The western wall, you've seen it. It's the wailing wall. When you see the Jews going to pray at the wall and they put the little pieces of paper in the wall and they're praying, that's the western wall. It was originally the western wall of the city. It is the foundation wall of the plaza on which the temple was built. It's not part of the temple. It's a foundation wall. But they leave that wall and a couple of towers. And this wall was spared, Josephus writes, in order to afford a camp for such as were to lie in garrison, 
as were the towers also spared in order to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified, which the Roman valor had subdued. But for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left, listen to this, nothing to make those that came there believe it had ever been inhabited. That's how thoroughly the destruction happened that Jesus promised. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce describes it like this. He says, in April of A.D. 70, Titus invaded Jerusalem. As the siege wore on, the horrors of famine and even cannibalism were added to the hazards of war. But the defenders had no thought of capitulating, least of all when Titus urged the advantages of timely surrender upon them. On July 24th, the Romans captured the fortress of Antonia. Twelve days later, the daily sacrifice in the temple was discontinued. On August 27, the temple gates were burned. Two days later, on the anniversary of the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians in 587 BC, the sanctuary itself was set on fire and destroyed. By September 26th, the whole city was in Titus's hands. It was razed to the ground, only three towers of Herod's palace on the western wall being left standing with part of the western wall itself. Now, the early church in the years after Jesus and leading up to AD 70 understood what Jesus was saying. History tells us that when Jerusalem finally fell in AD 70, the number of Jews slaughtered was tremendous. But there were hardly any, if any, Christians who died. Why? Because they obeyed Jesus. They got out. They left. They went to the hills, like Jesus said. A, lo a large number of them left Jerusalem in the late 60s and went to the city of Pella. The historian Eusebius records this in his church history, book three. He says, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town in Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come there to Pella from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men now, meaning Christians, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. Think, for example, of what's going on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They they bring their gifts, but they lie about the amount and that whole deal, and they get struck by God, right? But what's going on in the church at that time? Acts 4, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Was this an early form of socialism or communism? There are a lot of people today that would like you to think so. This didn't happen in all of the other cities where the Christian church began. Why? Why are they selling their lands? Because the land in and around Jerusalem is going to be a war zone. And Jesus told them that when the time drew near, they should get out. Let's move on. Chapter 24, verse 3, the disciples' question. 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now we learn from Mark's version of this story in Mark 13 that the disciples here are Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Those are the four who are talking to Jesus. And they ask two questions. The first question is, when will these things happen? And that question is fairly obvious and straightforward, but Jesus doesn't give them a specific time. In fact, he doesn't know the exact time, he says. He does say for certain that it will happen to this generation. A generation in the Bible is typically 40 years. Think, for example, of when the Israelites disobeyed God in the wilderness, right? And how long did they have to wander? They wandered for 40 years. Why? Till that generation died off. So Numbers 23, excuse me, 32, 13 says, And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. So Jesus is here speaking in A.D. 30. Judgment comes in A.D. 70. 40 years. It's a generation. It's exactly what Jesus said. Okay? So when these things are fulfilled by 70 AD, Jesus is shown to be 100% accurate in what he was prophesying. The second question they ask is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the word age sometimes gets translated world, depending on the translation that you have in front of you. It might say the end of the world. That's a bad translation. The word world is cosmos. That's not what Matthew uses here. He uses the word ion, which means an age, a period of time. Okay, so it's speaking about a period of time. And they want to know what the visible sign will be that Jesus is about to come in judgment and that the old covenant era is ending and the age of Messiah is beginning. Now, remember, they still don't understand that Jesus is going to die and rise again, even though he's been saying it. They don't get it. They're asking about Jesus's official arrival as king, where he takes his throne and he executes judgment on his enemies. And Jesus is going to answer that question later in the chapter. But first, he's going to focus on their first question, when these things will happen. And here's what he has to say, starting in verses four and five. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ or the Messiah. And they will, they will lead many astray. Now, there will be false messiahs appearing. Okay, so that's the point. When Jesus says they will come in his name, he doesn't mean that they're going to claim the name of Jesus. He means they're going to claim the title or the role of Messiah or Christ. They will claim divine power or being a prophet or being the true king. There's a Jewish theologian who was writing about 100 years ago, Abba Hillel Silver, and he did an examination of Jewish expectations of the Messiah through the years. Here's what he had to say. He said the first century, and listen to this, this is, this is amazing because this is not a Christian saying this. This is a Jewish theologian. He says, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple. That generation leading up to AD 70, the very generation that Jesus is talking about, okay, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed not to an intensification of Roman persecution, but to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of the day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. That sounds exactly like what Jesus was warning them about, a bunch of false messiahs. 
And the Jewish historian Josephus, that we heard from before, he writes two books. He writes The Antiquities and The Jewish Wars. Between those two works, he identifies at least 16 different people or groups or um, movements that were messianic, that were claiming the arrival of the Messiah. Individuals who claimed to be the Messiah themselves or groups who claimed the Messiah is now here. In other words, and he's, he's identifying that in the period leading up to AD 70. So in other words, Jesus' prophetic statement about false messiahs was fulfilled in a very clear and direct way. Verses 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So leading up to Jesus' coming, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But Jesus says, that doesn't mean the end is coming quite yet. There will be another sign before he comes. But before that will be a period filled with wars and conflicts. Now, when this says nation will rise against nation, we shouldn't think of distinct nations like in our world today. We should think, for example, of how the Bible uses the word nations. Think of what Luke says in the book of Acts, chapter 2. He, he recounts what's going on there. He says, now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, now what does he mean by that? Every nation under heaven. Does he mean there are people from Australia and South Africa and China and Japan and South America and North America. Well, Luke goes on to kind of list the group. He says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. What are those groups? Those are all provinces or people groups that were under the general authority of the Roman Empire. See, for them, the Roman Empire is the world. That's who they're talking about. And these are the nations to which the Jews had been dispersed. Now, this seems really, if we're honest, like one of those prophecies that a fake prophet would make, right? Like the guys that, you know, you see on TV, I, there's, there's someone here, I, I'm seeing a, a name with an M, and I'm seeing the color blue, right? And, and then they're looking out in the audience and you find somebody who fits the description. Wars and rumors of wars. I mean, come on, right? But what we have to remember is, starting in 17 BC, what's going on in the Roman world? It's the Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. Now, granted, it's a forced peace. It's peace at the sword point and under the boot of Rome, but it is peace nonetheless. So what Jesus is saying here, wars and rumors of wars will be a change from the status quo. And historians tell us that the Pax Romana lasted, stayed intact until the reign of Nero, 54 to 68 BC, or AD, the time period right before AD 70. His reign began peacefully, but it ended with great violence. And then following Nero in AD 68, 
just before the events of AD 70, we have the year of four emperors. From June 68 to June 69, there's this turbulence and infighting in Rome until Vespasian takes control and his son Titus is the one who, then who continues the siege of Jerusalem. That same time period is called the Roman Civil Wars. Why? Because nations within the empire revolted and tried to secede. The Roman historian Tacitus mentions revolts by Britain and Germany and Sarmatai and Suebi during this time. Wars and rumors of wars. When Jesus says in verse 6 that the end is not yet, the word for end that he uses here is telos. It's the word that means goal or outcome, something that's being aimed at or heading toward. Jesus is saying that the final outcome of this, this whole buildup is not here quite yet. The wars and rumors of wars, that's not the end point. There's a further goal that's still coming, and that will be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. All right, then the end of verse 7. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And historians tell us that plenty of famines and earthquakes throughout the world happened at this time. In fact, even in the Bible, Acts 11, verse 28, speaking of prophets who came from Jerusalem, says this, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, okay, empowered by the Spirit of God, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor just before Nero. And the Roman historian Tacitus mentions earthquakes in Crete and Rome and Apamea and Phrygia and Campania and Laodicea and Pompeii. Seneca writes about earthquakes in Asia and Achaia and Syria and Macedonia. It was a time period where there was lots of famines and earthquakes. But those things also took place specifically in Jerusalem. In his Jewish wars, Josephus writes of an earthquake that hit Jerusalem in 67 AD as the Jewish war was breaking out, here's what he writes. There was, excuse, there broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds, with the largest showers of rain, continual lightnings, terrible thunderings, and listen to this, amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. And listen to then what he evaluates from this. He says, these things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the system of the world was put into this disorder. And anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. He goes on to describe the famine in Jerusalem during the siege. The madness of the rebellious did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. So there's famine, and the people are going crazy in the city under siege. And those two things play on each other, he's, he's saying. For there was no corn which anywhere appeared publicly, but robbers came running into and searched men's private houses, and then if they found any, they tormented them. He goes on to describe fathers and mothers pulling bits of food from the mouths of their children to eat in order to save themselves. He tells the story of a woman named Mary. And I want to be careful here for young ears, so listen carefully as I use big words. This woman slew and roasted her own immediate male progeny to ingest so that she could survive. And when others in the city smelled what was cooking, 
They came to seize the food, but when she showed them what she had done, they were horrified. And Josephus writes that the whole city was full of this horrid action immediately. And while everybody laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die. And those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or see such miseries. It's terrible. This is the judgment that Jesus is talking about. Go back with me to Deuteronomy 28. And I'm going to read for you here something that's absolutely horrible. But this is the word of God. Okay? Now remember, last week we saw that Matthew is showing blessings and cursings in his gospel and those curses, that final judgment, that all mirrors what's going on in Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 27 to 30. So we're right in the middle of that section, looking at the cursings that will fall on Israel if they are disobedient. So starting in chapter 28, verses 52 to 57. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. Sound familiar? And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. And it gets worse from there. I'll just stop there. Not only does the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., fulfill the words of Jesus' prophecy about famines and earthquakes. It fulfills the word of the Lord through Moses centuries and centuries earlier. And Jesus says in verse 8 here in Matthew 24 that this is, um, all these judgments are just the beginning. It's the beginning of birth pangs, he says. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. All these things that we've talked about so far are not the sign of Jesus's judgment coming. These are all the things that are leading up to it. Why does Jesus call it birth pains? Because there's something new coming after this climactic event. The new thing that's coming is the messianic kingdom. The Jewish age is coming to an end. The messianic age begins with Jesus' ascension and enthronement and his pouring out the Spirit at Pentecost. So there's this 40-year overlap while one age is winding down toward judgment and the other age is launching and growing. And that's where I want us to kind of land today as we think about this idea of the end of the age. We're going to explore this more in coming weeks, but let me just kind of begin to hint at it right now. What was happening from A.D. 30 with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, was an overlap of the ages. 
the Jewish age was coming to an end. That was the old covenant era where God was working primarily through ethnic Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham. But when Israel rejected her Messiah, they sealed their fate and they would face God's judgment. But this was also the beginning of the kingdom of Jesus. This is the new covenant era promised long beforehand in the Old Testament. In this era, the people of God are marked not by DNA or by physical markers, but by faith. Now, it was always the case that salvation was by faith. But what marked out the people of God in the old covenant was physical things. Now it's spiritual, it's faith. And what the old covenant was always leading to was Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. So those who follow Jesus are God's true covenant people by faith. And those who reject Jesus show themselves to be outside the covenant regardless of their DNA. Now we've heard mainly from Matthew But listen to how a few of the other New Testament writers communicate this idea. And I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm just going to put it up on the screen because I'm just going to kind of hit them like bullet points here. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he's talking about that wilderness generation that had to wander. And he says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the 40-year period back there that he's talking about, he says, we're in that period now. It's really specific. The end of the ages is happening now, as described by Jesus. Hebrews 8, and by the way, the whole book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. It's showing the superiority of the new covenant over the old, of what Jesus does over the old sacrifices. In speaking of a new covenant, Hebrews 8.13, he makes the first one, the first covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, that first covenant, and growing old, is ready to vanish away. So when the author to Hebrews is writing, that old covenant is still functioning, this temple is still standing, A.D. 70 hasn't come quite yet, but he's saying it's becoming obsolete And it's ready to vanish away as the new covenant replaces it. Chapter 9. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when Jesus appeared and made the final sacrifice, that's the end of the ages. It's the end of the old covenant era. Hebrews 10. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Chapter 13, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate of what? Outside the gate of Jerusalem. So think Jerusalem. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, out of Jerusalem, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. The earthly Jerusalem is not lasting. It's about to be destroyed. But we seek the city that is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. And Hebrews talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. James 5, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Ephesians 1, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has been named as the rightful king in the current age, as Paul's writing, the old covenant era that is coming to an end, Jesus has been shown to be the rightful king of the Jews, but also in the one to come, the new age that's beginning, he's the king. Now, I understand this is like heavy stuff and it's not the, it's, it, you, like you got to really work your brain to get your mind around what's going on here. But when you think about this destruction, this message of judgment, what are we supposed to take from this 2,000 years later? Let me just su suggest some questions for us to be asking ourselves this morning. First of all, first question is this, where does your allegiance lie? Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you part of his new covenant people? Not by virtue of outward things like who you are or what you've done or a church you've joined or anything like that, but by virtue of what he has done on your behalf. What has he done for you? Do you have faith in him? Second question, what's your relation to his word? Now, this interpretation of these passages may be new to you. It's important for us to listen to God's word and to be shaped by it. We should not be approaching God's word with our own preconceived ideas to make it say what we want to say. We need to be willing to sit under the word. Let the word rule over us. So are we willing to listen? And one final question. Do you believe that Jesus is on the throne? As you look around the world today, that may be hard to believe. But the story of Scripture should reinforce for us that oftentimes when things look dire, when things look terrible, that's when God chooses to display his glory. Jesus is on his throne. He is advancing his kingdom right now, and he will continue to do that until every enemy is put under his feet. I mean... We're sitting in a, a situation where we're watching our own government become just absolutely opposed to all things moral and biblical. What can God possibly do? Well, I mean, come on. That's his specialty, right? That's no problem for him. When does the church grow? The church grows in persecution historically. If our nation falls apart and we face persecution, guess what's going to happen? The kingdom of Christ will grow. We can be part of that. Do you believe that Jesus is on the throne? Now I understand, I get all worked up about what's going on too. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we have a, a vastly superior understanding of what is going on in the world. We have the knowledge that Jesus is on the throne, that what looks like is happening out in the world today is not the reality. There are spiritual battles taking place and nothing that's happening now is the least bit of threat to Jesus. Not in the least. Do you believe that? Are you living with that confidence? Are you living as if Jesus is on his throne or are you living in fear and doubt? He calls us to trust him. Let's finish with prayer.
Lord, we thank you for your word. And even as we're reading something that is um, maybe language we're not used to dealing with and it sounds so distant and hard to understand at times, I pray that first of all, you would help us to see it, help us to understand what you are communicating through these words. But secondly, to believe it, to believe what we see about you. I pray that we would trust you, that we would recognize your sovereignty, your control, your lordship, and that we would be faithful people who serve you in whatever circumstances you lead us into. Help us to love you and to trust you and to live faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name.